Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. The American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine recently announced a call for papers for an upcoming special issue on critical care. Critical care, an evolving area in pulmonary medicine, addresses care for patients facing life-threatening illnesses due to disease or injury. You can learn more about the journal's formatting guidelines and find a link to submit your paper by visiting atsjournals.org promo. That's atsjournals.org promo. Thanks and enjoy this week's episode of Out of the Blue. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. I'm Michael Lanspa. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by Dr. Edward Palmer and colleagues entitled The Association Between Superphysiologic Arterial Oxygen Levels and Mortality in Critically Ill Patients, a Multicenter Observational Cohort Study. I'm joined today by Dr. Ed Palmer from the Bloomberg Institute of Intensive Care Medicine in London. Ed, thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me. I wanted to start by discussing the premise that hyperoxia might be harmful. I mean, oxygen is something that we need to survive and we consume this drug every minute. So our treatment of shock states usually is focused on increasing oxygen delivery, sometimes to superphysiologic states. And we, we don't think of this as necessarily being harmful. How is hyperoxia potentially harmful? Yeah, sure. So it's a, it's a really good question. And I suppose oxygen is obviously the elixir of life uh, we certainly need it, as you say. But uh, the, the way I think about this is that for much of our evolutionary history, we haven't been exposed to anything more than 21% oxygen, certainly not whilst we've been homo sapiens. Uh, so exposure to high levels of oxygen above 40 or 50% is, is something that we've only recently experienced. So we haven't really had any time to develop any compensatory mechanisms there. So we know from animal data that uh, high levels of oxygen can be extremely detrimental, but it, it's very difficult to elucidate that in humans, not the least the which because oxygen is really important and uh, we've been using it for a long time because it works. It's actually really, really useful and we know it's intuitively obvious that if we don't use oxygen as part of our, our routine care, that uh, patients could easily come to harm. So it's about trying to tease apart whether excess oxygen is harmful. And, and that's, that's the question that's very difficult to answer. Why do you think, though, um, that oxygen might be harmful? You know, like you'd mentioned in the background of your study about large meta-analysis that uh, had looked at a bunch of patients who had potential harm with a high-dose oxygen, but they didn't find any difference in hospital-acquired pneumonia, length of stay, or disability. What do you think the mechanism might be for why the oxygen might be dangerous? Yeah, I, I think that there are broader oxidative stress mechanisms. So, you know, free radical damage and things like that. Then there's the concern of direct toxicity to the lung parenchyma itself. It's really difficult to tease these things out in humans just because the experimental work is very difficult to do. But the animal research would certainly suggest that the, the damage is, is due to direct harm to the lung tissue itself and the fibrotic change that ensues. Um, and then the uh, oxidative stress damage from uh, free radicals in the presence of high oxygen. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very astute point. We use oxygen to etch glass. You know, it's a very powerful oxidizer, hence the name. Despite 
these harms, these or at least these potential harms, it seems like no one really seems to care about regulating this drug. I mean, along with IV fluids, oxygen is probably one of the most commonly administered drugs. And it seems that even among patients with no lung disease, it's very common to get a few liters of oxygen by nasal cannula. In fact, I think almost every night in the hospital, the oxygen ferry comes by and puts a bunch of patients on oxygen. Uh, why do you think we use this drug with so little regulation? Well, I think historically, it's been a wonderful thing. You know, the, the early historical descriptions of oxygen are quite a delight to read because they, they really do describe the bringing back a patient from, from the edge of death. And over the years, as it's become more accessible and oxygen is plumbed into every wall in every hospital, certainly, that I've ever worked in, it just becomes such an easy and trivial part of care to apply it. And it's something to do, isn't it? It's, it's, if, if there's something that's vaguely wrong with the patient, it's a very easy action to, to put some oxygen on. And actually, if there is harm from oxygen excess, it's very difficult to tease out, probably because it's below the human perception, because um, it's, it's a small contributory factor. So, so the benefit is, is quite self-evident, and the harm is very difficult to see. So it's just such a, such a routine part of care now. It's so embedded. It's physically in the building structure of hospitals. Um, so I suspect a lot of it is, is, is cultural and behavioral as to why it's, um, why it's so ubiquitous. No, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, I see several parallels with how we've treated intravenous fluids over the past couple of decades. Uh, one thing that I thought was really novel about your study, there's been a lot of other work in this area of oxygen administration, but uh, you tried to calculate the patient's exposure to hyperoxemia. Could you explain how you determined the dose? Yeah, absolutely. So I think oxygen is very difficult to tease apart, as I've alluded to, because it's confounded very strongly by a treatment indication. We, we know that sick people need oxygen, and in those cases, it's often beneficial. So trying to come up with a clean definition of excess oxygen is extremely pro problematic. So the, the approach that we took to it was that we didn't try to look at the actual oxygen delivered to the patient, which arguably is, is actually the, the mechanistic cause of harm, if there is such a thing. But we tried to uh, redefine the question. And because we have a large number of arterial blood gas samples, we can use that to try and construct a somewhat imperfect, but I hope I can convince people an unambiguous definition of oxygen excess. So uh, we took regular samples of arterial blood gases and we drew a line where that value was greater than 13 kilopascals or about 100 millimeters of mercury. Uh, with the rationale there is that whatever the underlying reason, that can only be achieved under reasonable conditions by excess supplemental oxygen. There's not really a strong reason that we can think of why you'd need to maintain somebody's partial pressure of oxygen uh, arterially above that level. So we use that as a, as a lower threshold, and then we plot the area under the curve between the partial pressure time curve and that lower threshold. So we are able to create a notional exposure over time of strictly SS excess oxygen. Now it's most certainly an imperfect definition because we have to discard a reasonable amount of data. We have to voluntarily censor the data to come up with this definition. But what it does do is remove the ambiguity of confounding by treatment indication. No, I thought that was probably one of the most clever aspects of your study. Let's talk about your study here. So what sort of patients were you actually including? Yeah, so we tried to be as 
pragmatic as possible. We wanted it to try and be all comers to intensive care. There were some uh, notable exclusions. Uh, so, for example, we don't include people who had cardiopulmonary resuscitation in the 24 hours before they come to ICU. Those patients often come in, for example, on 100% and uh, 100% oxygen, and you can see the obvious confounding there. Um, but we try to be as pragmatic as possible and include as many patients who come to our to our ICUs as possible. In reality, that means that it's a mixed surgical medical cohort, and because of the um, elective surgical element, it's actually a, a relatively low mortality cohort. So I think the average mortality was around about 5%-ish across the various cohorts that we assembled. So you, you took these patients and you uh, tried to analyze the effect of hyperoxemia with clinical outcomes, and you used regression models to help determine that. Can you go into a little bit more detail about how you performed these regression models? Yeah, absolutely. So we built four regression models using logistic regression. So we were targeting patients' outcome, their survivorship from intensive care. And we had to construct four models because we needed an equal potential for exposure across each cohort. So we started with our initial cohorts. That's patients who were in ICU for at least 24 hours. So that defined a continuous potential, excuse me, a constant potential for exposure to oxygen over the, that first 24 hours. We then took subsets of that cohort to create new regressions with three days of potential exposure, five days of potential exposure, and seven days of potential exposure. And this allows us to look at the temporal trend that exists from increased exposure to oxygen over, over that duration. So I thought that regression model was uh, very interesting in the fact that you did multiple uh, models to try to uh, give a, a more robust perspective of this exposure. But one of the things that I find um, uh, is a common criticism of retrospective studies, especially looking at oxygen administration and outcomes, is that they're confounded by indication often, as you had mentioned uh, earlier. For those of the audience who don't know what that means, uh, confounding by indication would mean that the sicker people tend to get more oxygen. Uh, so how did you try to attempt to address this in your study? As you mentioned, you, you had tried to avoid any sorts of uh, confounding by indication. Yeah, I, I think it's a really fair criticism. And we tried to account for this by including markers of uh, illness severity in the model itself. So for example, Apache 2 score is included in their people's age, gender, weight, and whether or not they're medical or surgical patients, for example, and a few other qualities. So we tried to encapsulate a notion of their acute illness severity but uh, you know it's a really fair criticism and and all of these things have to be taken with a degree of uh, salt because there is always the risk risk for residual confounding even after that adjustment process i think that's a very balanced response here how did you deal with the patients who had respiratory failure or who had received mechanical ventilation and then you know also how did you deal with the patients who had no hyperoxemia yeah, so in terms of mechanical ventilation and people with uh, respiratory involvement, those were uh, important subgroups of interest. Uh, so we added interaction effects into the model to try and explore if there was a differential effect, or sometimes re referred to as heterogeneity of treatment effect, across those groups. Basically, do these particular subgroups respond differently to oxygen exposure? It's worth stressing that, that these kinds of interaction effects actually require a lot of data to support them. So uh, for our purposes, that it's possible that they are in fact underpowered. But uh, within those interaction effects, we could find very little evidence to suggest that there was a different effect to oxygen exposure between those two groups. 
in terms of accounting for zero auction exposure, um, this is this is really important and, and and actually somewhat subtle. And zero auction exposure, it's a little bit like making sure that if you were to do a study of smoking, you need to in, include in your study people who are non-smokers. But if you if you don't account for it properly, uh, you can often make it look like there's a dose response effect where in fact none exists. So we used a method whereby we model oxygen exposure in two components, an indicator component suggesting whether or not the patient had any exposure to excess oxygen, and then the dose component itself. So what this does is introduce a discontinuity at zero so that you can investigate the dose response component somewhat more truthfully. So our study shows that we found an association with harm from exposure to oxygen, but we couldn't, couldn't qualify that further in terms of a dose response. And this is a little bit like saying, well, if we use the smoking analogy again, we found that, uh, for example, any amount of smoking is associated with harm, but we can't tell you if smoking 20 or 40 a day is any worse for you. I think that's a great uh, analogy. So let's talk about what you actually found in your study. What, what did you find as far as the relationship between hyperoxemia and outcomes? So we found a very, I would say, conservative influence of excess oxygen on harm. And as I alluded to earlier, that effect was limited to the indicator subcomponent of oxygen exposure. So when you perform this method to account for a large number of zeros in your data, you have to consider the dose and indicator components in concert. So when you look at this globally, this probably accounts to about a 1% on average contribution to someone's risk of death. So it's, it's a very, very modest in uh, association. Uh, between excess oxygen exposure but, but as i said earlier we, we weren't able to attribute a dose response over that so it does it does somewhat call into question the whether or not there's a, a causal element there uh, as uh, we were trying to really be clear about the dose responsiveness as a surrogate for causality i think that's a very conservative response one of the thoughts i had though would be is even if this is a real finding one percent of some treatment that is is common places oxygen could have huge system-wide effects across the nation if we could change our practice to avoid this. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's our thought exactly as well. So one, one challenge I, I've had uh, in a different field when uh, studying volatile exposures is that sicker patients are in the ICU for a longer period of time and that they've had more opportunities to be exposed to the potential risk, like for example, hyperoxemia. So patient who's got a short ICU stay may only have a few opportunities to get exposed compared to a longer uh, stay. So how do you account for this in your study? So I think some of that is mitigated from the fact that we've got these four nested cohorts and each cohort therefore has a fixed potential exposure window for oxygen. So within each model, which is conditioning on time, that shouldn't be problematic. However, I think it's a very, very fair comment that patients, for example, who might go to be transferred to the CT scanner or might go down to theater or these kinds of patients who we know are more unstable, more likely to die, are more likely to be intermittently placed on 100% oxygen for short periods. I, th I think our model would also find those associations. So we can't properly eliminate this problem. One thing that I did think was interesting about the study that I had not seen in a lot of others was the fact that you performed a counterfactual risk plot. Could you kind of go into a little bit more detail and explain the significance of this? Yeah, absolutely. So 
what we did was we used the model to simulate or project what it thinks would happen if people were not exposed to any oxygen. So we take the patient's own exposure to oxygen that was observed and we set it to zero and we simulate the outcome. And what that plot basically shows is that a large number of our patients are inherently low risk. They have an underlying risk of one or 2% anyway. And so the opportunity to improve the patient's outcome by avoiding oxygen is very, very modest in those patients. And that's where a large amount of the weight of the improvement can be made. There are other patients who are inherently higher risk, and it's the nature of probability that they can experience greater benefits. And this is sort of the point that underpins things like prognostic enrichment of trials. It's, it's the principle of, of looking for patients who can maximally benefit from the therapy. Yeah, I thought that was probably one of the most clever parts of the study. I thought, you know, a lot of people have looked at oxygen and risk, but this was a very deep dive, so to speak. So kind of in summary, you found a relationship between hyperoxemia and mortality, but you didn't find a dose dependency. So how should I as a clinician or an investigator interpret this? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? I think it's really difficult. I would say that I think if you put this in the context of all the other research that's out there now, I think that it is advisable, unless there's a very good reason for it, not to run patients with a PaO2 above 13 or 100, uh, 13 kilopascals or, or, or 100 millimeters of mercury. I, I can't see a good rationale for that uh, anymore, to be perfectly honest. I think everybody wants to know optimality. And in order to come up with our de definition of oxygen, we've had to look explicitly at excess and not of optimality, because the optimal oxygenation is inherently confounded by treatment indication, as we've, as we've described earlier. So, so for me personally, I cannot think of a good reason why I'd want to run patients with an arterial partial pressure above 13 kilopascals or 100 millimeters of mercury. But beyond that, it's very difficult to say. Yeah, no, I also don't see a reason to do that, although it seems as though in clinical practice, it happens so frequently. So you talk about wanting a further experimental investigation in your study, which is a comment we all, we all say, but how would you envision we'd actually perform a study to really investigate the, this association? I think before you answer that, I just kind of want to point out there were a couple of issues here. One is that clinical inertia where so many patients routinely get exposed to hyperoxemia for procedures and transports, as, as you had said. And then one of the other issues here is oxygen's perceived as a safe drug by a lot of people. And I can think of one study that looked at oxygen as a randomized controlled trial in preterm infants, the support trial. And it got a lot of controversy, which I think was inappropriate, but it got a lot of controversy after the fact because some people viewed the investigators as withholding a supposedly safe drug. So how do you envision we might perform a a study, both framing it to maintain equipoise and as well as trying to reduce this sort of challenge with clinical inertia of just uh, no big deal, just give them a little bit more oxygen. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that you bring up the, the neonatal point of view, because I think the neonatitians certainly that I've worked with now all resuscitate with Romer, and that's an evolution of that story. So I just wonder if maybe we'll get there ourselves a little bit later on. The randomized control trial perspective here, I think equipoise is really difficult to tease out. And I think it would have to be a study that involves a conservative versus 
current best practice strategy. I don't think you could prescribe a, a liberal strategy, for example, necessarily, where you mandate the instinct there, if, if, if ethics could be put on pause for a moment, would be to prognostically enrich by trying to achieve very good separation between these two groups. And I just don't, I'm just not convinced that the equipoise is there anymore. So I think it would have to be a conservative versus best practice strategy. And then, of course, we've got to balance this with hypoxemia because oxygen is obviously a life-saving drug. So we have to have very well-defined standards as to what constitutes being too conservative. And I think that's very much open for a discussion as well. I think uh, you, you hit the nail on the head, and I'm hoping that someday in the near future we'll be able to get a definitive answer. So I know your study can't give us the definitive answer at this point, and we're still waiting for that. And Uh, The question I'm about to ask is probably more speculation, but what do you personally think about the sort of hyperoxemia that we see in routine ICU care? Should I think that putting the patient on 100% oxygen to transfer them to the CT scanner, is that truly harmful? Or if I'm about to uh, perform a procedure and putting them up to 100% for 5-10 minutes, I mean, should we think twice about that sort of transient hyperoxemia? What do you personally think? Is that harmful to patients? Yeah, I, I think it's a really difficult question to answer. And I think that kind of stuff comes down to the individual physician and making sure that their patient is safe and oxygen in the here and now when you're performing, for example, an emergency procedure can be life saving. And all of this has to be balanced. It's really important to be balanced with that underlying message. That being said, I think there's lots of unanswered questions about the cumulative effect of oxygen exposure. So is it that high doses of oxygen for a very short period of time is harmful or is it just the cumulative effect after many days? So I think these are questions that we haven't been able to address and that requires a lot more time to look at. But for now, I think for those situations where you're transferring a patient or you're performing an emergency procedure, I don't think that there's enough here to dramatically change practice from those moments because ours was a study of aggregated accumulated change over time. Well, I agree that there's probably not enough at present to change practice, but I'll certainly be thinking twice about administering too much oxygen in my ICU patients. Well, we're out of time. So this concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. Thank you, Dr. Ed Palmer, for joining me in a great discussion of the use of oxygen in the ICU. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I I hope someday we'll have an answer to this question of whether or not uh, oxygen is going to be harmful. But until that time, I hope uh, all of you listeners at least pause when thinking about giving more oxygen than needed. This is Mike Lanspa for the American Thoracic Society. Thank you. Thank you.